Good morning. How are you? I was thinking about our church today, and I was just so grateful for you all. And I just love our church. And I don't know about how you feel, but I just am so happy to be a part of this church community. And I don't know, it was just in my morning time, I was just really reflecting on just all of the stories within our church, all of the uh, amazing things that are happening, how our church has been there so much for each other. And, and I think especially over the last two years, it just has shown me so much about the character of being a believer, the character of, of the church, and what the church can do together. And so, I don't know, I, I was, is it weird to say I was thinking about you this morning? I mean, I was thinking about you this morning, and I'm just so grateful that I get the opportunity to pastor and be a part of this church as well. And um, so, uh, real quick, I want to reiterate that, like Chad said, it is very, very important, the NCAA tournament, so... Um, just want to make sure, if you want to watch it with some guys, we'll be here, guys, girls, whoever, and we'll be watching the tournament here. And then also, as we pray, let's just pray for thankfulness, thankfulness of God's mercy. We're heading into what is the most important season in our faith. It's a season to remember what God has done. I look at you all here, and I see transformed people. People who once were dead spiritually and now are alive. I, I never want Easter to go by without remembering the moment when I prayed to God for help. And I thought I had my life together. You thought you had your life together. And we were just, we were just good with what we were doing until it became undoable anymore. And we started to realize something. The Bible says that God will, is relentlessly after us. He's never going to waste an opportunity to connect and reach his people. And I think at the end of the day, what happened is that moment when you found God is really he had already found you and you responded to his mercy, his grace, and his love. And uh, every Easter, I always try to retell myself the story of what I was like before I became a believer. How many of you in here don't like thinking about those times before you were a believer when you think about them? How many? I do not. I look back and I think, that's not me. The greatest compliment I, I ever really got about what God had done in my life is when people would say, wow, when I hear your story, it doesn't seem like that's you. And that's the power of transformations, the power of sanctification it's what God's doing in your life continually. So Easter is this time to not just remember what God has done, what Christ did on the cross for you for salvation. It's the time to look back and remember, wow, I remember what I was like. And thank God he came into my life. So let's pray. God, we thank you so much for today. We thank you for who you are. We thank you, God, for your mercy. We thank you for sending your son, Christ. Thank you for dying on the cross for our sins and bringing us into a new light. We love you. We thank you. As we read Luke chapter 22, and we see the significance of what you've done through this Last Supper, we ask that we just do not walk out the same. Uh, by the way, if you see my hand shaking, it's because I started lifting weights again, and boy, oh boy, this has been a huge mistake. I can't even lift this microphone up to my head. 
Don't get out of shape. It's really tough to get back into shape. Okay. I titled this message, New, and in this message, we're going to see that Jesus is dealing with three very different things, and we're going to see in this little section of Luke, this buildup that's been happening, coming to Luke chapter 22, where Jesus is going to introduce us to something different. Three new things. We're going to hear about a new exodus that is happening. And we're going to hear about a new covenant. And we're going to hear about some new ways of living, new rules for the believer. And so I think about these new rules is probably the most difficult. When we hear about the new covenant, Jesus comes and stands in place on our end of the covenant. He upholds this covenant with God, so we then become believers, and we are grafted in, and we are in the kingdom, and we are part of God's family. But the new rules, which we'll get to the end, is actually part of the most difficult process. It's when Jesus says, the way things work in the world are not how the kingdom works works. There's something different happening now. It's what we're left with post-resurrection, to live according to the ways that God has established for his people. I don't like new rules. I don't know if you're like me. I do not like new rules. In sports, I do like new rules that have happened, but I don't like rules when they're put on me, especially when I'm breaking the rules in sports, right? I loved it when they expanded the three-point line and actually made a three-point line, and pretty soon they're shooting threes and they're getting credit for the threes. Did you know they didn't used to be able to dunk in basketball? Now they dunk and it's made the sport amazing. New rules have developed, but can you imagine the people back in the day going, we're going to add a three-point line? Can you imagine people saying, we're going to start dunking? That's not right. I mean, new rules are hard when we're beginning to switch over. We have new rules at our job. I'll never forget when I was in college and I was uh, checking people in at a hotel. That was my side job. And they came in with a new software and they said, there's a new way of doing things and we had to learn it. And I didn't understand computers. I wasn't techie. And it just took so long, but eventually the outcome was so much better and so much faster. New is very, very difficult. And in your life, you're going to realize in your Christian walk that God is calling you into something that's new. It's different. But the outcome is always going to be better. It's hard to change how we've operated for so long, and we're going to find it right here with the disciples. It's very difficult for these disciples to think of a new way of living and, and put away the way of the world and its systems. So in Luke chapter 22, if you have your Bibles, you can open them up. If you have it on your app, you can look it up on the app. We'll start in verse 1 in a minute. But there are three major theological moments that happen in Luke chapter 22. A lot of times we're just going to read right over of these first parts, 1 through 30. And we're not really going to fully just appreciate what's happening. So I want to take some time and really break this down, what Jesus is introducing here. And the first thing is this. In Luke chapter 22, Jesus is going to introduce this new exodus. The new exodus for you and for me was we were once bound in slavery to sin. And God brings us out and finds a new way and we enter into a new place. 
We were once caught in our sin. We were once dead to our sin. We were once bound by that sin. And now there is a way out. And the Exodus relates back to Exodus 12, where Jesus, or where Moses is getting ready to lead the people out of the promised land by the power of God. And it's an exodus of people who were there for 400 years in slavery. And this was not a kind empire. They were brutal. They were building all over the land of Egypt. You can see their monuments today still. And they died on the job site. It was like, oh, well, get another. It was just a brutal, brutal time for them. It was hard labor. And they were inundated with Egyptian culture. And so... We see it when they exit and they go out. There's a whole new way of living, a whole new laws that God is trying to introduce to his people to remove the culture that was once such an influence in their life and they have a very difficult time. Now, in this day, when Luke 22 is written, they're, they're occupied by Rome. One of the greatest, one of the most powerful uh, empires of all time. They reigned for a long time, not as long as the Egyptians, but they were powerful and they were dominant. And so they were not necessarily enslaved, but they were definitely occupied. So they were feeling this exodus happening. And when Jesus is talking about a level of an exodus, they're thinking something maybe a little different. They're thinking like freedom from the Romans. Jesus is talking about something much, much deeper. They had been occupied for almost 100 years. There was heavy taxes, but there was Roman influence in, uh, in, in their culture on them. But we have to remember that there's no difference between what was happening in Egypt, what was happening in Rome, and what happens all around the world today. There is always going to be another war, there will always be another power, and there will always be another oppressor. And what Jesus has come to do is lead us, the people, not just away from or out of the thing that is oppressing them, but the thing behind the thing that causes the oppression. The thing behind the thing is the power and dominion of sin. It's the power of a fallen world and this corruption under the leadership of Satan. And Jesus comes to free us, take us across to a promised land from that dominion that we felt like we were born into this. We will die into this. And Jesus brings life and takes us to another place. The power of sin's dominion, you have to know this when it comes to uh, chapter 22, Jesus is stating that the power of sin ends with him. The power of its dominion ends with Jesus. And so, open up to Luke 22, verse 1, we'll start reading. Now the feast of unleavened bread drew near, which is called the Passover. And at this time, the city is... Well, my left hand's stronger than my right. Okay, it's not shaking. The, <laughs> the unleavened bread drew near, and it says, and it, and it called uh, the Passover. The city at this time is bursting with people. People from all around Israel are, are drawing in, and other nations drawing in to celebrate the Passover. If you do not know what the Passover is, the Passover is simply the Passover. God's Spirit passed over the households that were prepared, and then all the households that were not perished, at least someone in some household died. At that time, it was the last plague. 
And it takes place in Exodus chapter 12. And the unleavened bread used to be a separate festival, but over time they combined them into the Passover. The unleavened bread, you're like, what does that mean? Here's what it means. At that time, God gave them instruction. You will not have time for your bread to rise, and you will not be able to put leaven in it. It will not be ready, so you need to just get your bread ready, and you need to dress that night ready to leave. You will fasten your belt, you will have your clothes on, you will have your staff, and you'll be packed and ready to go because I'm going to deliver you tonight. The reason why it's important to continue to celebrate it and why it needs to be mentioned is that God's provision is going to have to provide for them. That they need to be ready. They need to be ready to go. Because God's deliverance is coming their way. You just have to trust God. So when you hear unleavened bread the, uh, during the Passover, they're celebrating the fact that they're going to have to trust God and they need to be ready and every year when they came together and celebrated, it was the readiness of God's deliverance in their life. This feast is about God's salvation. At the end of the day, this feast, when we read about it, is about Jesus ultimately the, being the true meaning of the Exodus, the Passover. Verse 2, it says, And the chief priests and the scribes were seeking how to put him to death, for they feared the people. Now, if you have been with us tracking, the crowds are following Jesus. And we know this from our current politics, if you do not know. The politicians are usually afraid of the consensus of the people, are they not? They usually are worried about what the people are thinking. Sometimes when I watch uh, the news, I'm like, but this thing happened. But it seems to be that nobody cares about it, so nobody does anything about it. But when the people care about it, people do something about it. And so this is the same thing that's happened since that time and before, is that the people were causing the fear of the leaders to do anything to Jesus. And so this leans a lot into why Judas does what he does in his story. But remember this, Jesus knew they were going to kill him. Jesus knew they were after him. He had been letting the disciples know over and over, six times as a matter of fact, throughout Luke, if you kept count, that he's letting them know that this time is coming the time for Jesus laying his life down is coming. But listen to verse 3. Then Satan entered into Judas, called Iscariot, who was one of the number of the twelve. And when I read this, I think, did, did, did Satan enter into Judas? This is, this is kind of a crazy thought. And so I've read and read and read and read as much as I possibly could, and I just thought about this verse and prayed over it. And ultimately, the, con the overall consensus is that when Satan directly wants to stop the mission of Jesus, he's, he's in the book of Luke twice. He's in the desert with Jesus, beginning to try to stop in the movement of Jesus immediately. But Jesus resists him, and he resists the temptation. Judas does not. And so we hear this language, we see Satan is directly getting involved, so therefore we see this will come to an end soon. Verse 4, and then when he, Judas, went away and conferred with the chief priests and officers, these are the people who are guarding the temple. Rome, Roman soldiers were not allowed to be up there guarding the temple, so there was a deal struck that they had these officers, the chief priest, and then the high priest. Jesus was beginning to threaten the entire power system and dynamic that was happening. 
just by teaching a new way, a new kingdom, and a new freedom. And it says this, that he conferred with the priest, uh, chief priests and officers how he might betray him to them. And they were glad and agreed to give him money. So he consented and sought an opportunity to betray him in the absence of the crowd. This is why Judas was very important to this story. is because they couldn't get to him, because wherever Jesus was, the crowd was. But they were looking for the moment, someone on the inside, an inside man who could get the job done and knew exactly Jesus' pattern of where he would be at. Now we'll read later in Luke chapter 22. You will. Uh, we won't do it today. When people would not be around Jesus. And so he was willing to deceive and bring them to where he was at, where there was no people. And the funny thing about power is power ultimately will always fight to survive. They didn't care what the people wanted. They cared what the power wanted. Not for the people, but for itself. And you see this nature, this power working, this old dominion that was there that Jesus begins to break the back of. It says, they came to the day of unleavened bread in which the Passover lamb had to be sacrificed. This is back in chapter 12 of Exodus. What God had commanded the Israelites was any pure uh, uh, lamb or goat, uh, sacrifice this goat and then put, it, put the blood up over your doorpost. And when the spirit of God comes, he will pass over your home and you will be safe. And so we're seeing this language being introduced when it comes to Jesus, right? Verse 8, Jesus sent Peter and John saying, go and prepare the Passover for us that we may eat it. And he said to him, where will, we, where will you have us prepare it? And he said to them, behold, when you have entered the city, a man carrying a jug of water will meet you. Remember that. Follow him into the house that he enters. Verse 11. And tell the master of the house, the teacher says to you, where is the guest room? Now the guest room is where they went and had this last supper. It was usually at the top floor or, the, or, or on the roof. And it was an area prepared for these meals, especially in the cool of the night. And so he will have a guest room. It says, where I may eat the Passover with my disciples. And he will show you a large room furnished. Prepare it there, the Passover meal. And they found it just as he told them, and they prepared the Passover. Now, when Judas was influenced, we look at here, we see Judas is influenced by Satan. This man with the jug seems to be influenced by Jesus or by God's work. It's interesting because I step back when I see these kind of corollas in the Bible, I think, wait a minute, are, are, are we really in control? Judas is being pulled into one direction by the devil, this man with the water jug is, unless Jesus made a pre-arrangement we don't know about, is being influenced by God. And I do ask that question, like, are we really in control? And I think the answer is yes, and it's no. We, yes, we have free will. Yes, we do. But I think it feels like what we feel like sometimes around us, that there are feels like to me. There are forces of evil and there are forces of good, and they feel like they're clashing sometimes around us. I don't, 
I, I don't get too way off into the weeds about the, the, the big, huge war of evil and good in our world, but I can feel it sometimes, can you not? Where there seems like there's forces of good and there's forces of evil and they're clashing around us and we see this happening right here in the story. I think ultimately we know there is a spiritual war going on for your soul and for the world's soul. I, I think that in this story alone, we can give in to evil like Judas. We can buy into that I'd rather just serve manna, which Judas does, or serve God. We can buy into and give into this way of evil, which is deception and, and pain and misery. We can give into that, or we can give into God's goodness that he's working all around us. And I believe he constantly is. The reason you are a believer is because you are swept up in the goodness of God's good influence happening around you. Right? And so it's warring for our soul. But Jesus says there is a new exodus coming here. And this exodus is for your eternal salvation. This exodus is from the thing that's behind the thing that corrupts this world, and I'm going to break the back of it, and I'm going to take you into the promised land. The second part of which we probably know the most, which is the new covenant. Now, biblical covenants are very, very different than today. Biblical agreements, a covenant, they're so different, right? Back then, they were binding, they were upheld, and in some cases, your life was put on the line as collateral for the breaking of the covenant. And so when God enters into a covenant with us, he upholds his end. But unfortunately, mankind does not uphold their end. So God upholds both ends through Christ, this new covenant. What you cannot do, Jesus does for you. And this is the revolution that happens through Christ. This is why we get to celebrate the resurrection of Christ, because he upholds the covenant. For you. God makes a covenant with you through Christ for an exodus, for a life that's beyond what we ever thought we could have. I was watching Judge Judy the other day. Big fan of Judge Judy. Anybody? I haven't watched Judge Judy in a long time. I was watching Judge Judy, and somebody tried to tell me it was fake. It was my son. He said, this is fake. I was like, this is not fake. How dare you? Is it fake? I don't know. Oh, so I was watching Judge Judy. And as I was watching, I just was watching case after case. And I was just like, it was one broken contract after another, one scheme after another. And clearly, I'm with Judge Judy. She's getting so angry at the... <laughs> I'm always with Judge Judy. <laughs> and so she's getting so angry. And then she's mad because she sees the wrongdoing in what someone's like literally stating right there. One person was ripping somebody off so bad through a deal that they made. It was so egregious, and it was his, his stepson he was doing it to. And she was so mad, and I was just like, you get him, Judy. <laughs> it's, it's, today, it, it's not like that. Like, we have contracts on contracts. We have lawyers. We have courts. It's always a risk to enter into an agreement. We never know if the person will uphold it. This is different times. 
And we have to look at God doesn't work like that. When we ask like, oh God, uh, I, I sinned and and, and, and therefore, I'm not a Christian anymore. And, and God, I need to rededicate my life to you. Now, I get like remembering the commitment that you made to Christ. But God doesn't break his covenant with you. He's not like that. He upholds both ends. Jesus came so you could have freedom from what you couldn't do. And that's upholding that covenant. Jesus came. So that you could be secure in your faith and have everlasting life with God. He, he, he doesn't work like our covenant. So when we judge our standing with God the way that we, the world works when it comes to agreements and, and the way we come into an agreement or a contract, I get it why you'd feel insecure if you judged it by that. Or you'd wonder if God has left you or where are you, God? Or I, I sinned and therefore he can't look at me anymore. That's not how covenants work with God. That's not how it worked here. And Jesus is very clear about this. So let's read here what we know so well. Verse 14. Uh, 14. And when the hour came, he reclined at the table with the apostles. Now, if you're paying attention when you read Luke, Luke never calls the disciples apostles. But now he does. Now we see a transfer happening where these will be his leaders of the church. These of the church age especially. These will be the ones who will take these in these last moments and then begin these very uh, failing, faltering, human, struggling guys who are just trying to follow Jesus he now calls them apostles. And he said to them, I have earnest desire to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. And he knows what's coming his way. And this again is a reminder where Jesus is telling them, everything that you think isn't the way you think. My kingdom doesn't work the way you think. But even when his disciples hear it, they're not really hearing it. Have you ever been in a conversation with somebody where you're telling them Something, but they're not hearing it at all. They're hearing it the way they want to hear it. Anybody like that? Any married people? Yes, we know. We know. They're not hearing what Jesus is saying. They're still thinking in a mindset, uh, old rules, in a way that the kingdom doesn't work. They're thinking Jesus maybe is exaggerating this. Maybe he, maybe maybe he's, in, 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 you know. Stoking something up that's, that's really not there. I don't know what they're thinking, but they're not fully understanding what he's saying. He says, for I tell you, I will not eat this meal until it is fulfilled in the kingdom of God. Now, this is very future tense, right? When we all sit down at the great table with God having this meal. Verse 17, and he took the cup. And when he had given thanks, he said, take this and divide it amongst yourself. For I tell you that from now on, I will not drink of the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. And I will drink that drink with you. And he took the bread and he gave thanks and he broke it and he gave it to them saying, this is my body, which is given to you. Do this in remembrance of me. Now, this is so important. This is why we will do communion today. We, we are going to remember what Jesus did this day. We're going to remember the moment when we were dead and now we're alive. We're going to remember salvation. Deuteronomy 16 says this about the Exodus. 
and about this Passover celebration, all the, 16.3, that all the days of your life you may remember the day when you came out of Egypt. Don't forget, don't lose sight, don't let it fade. It is very easy as believers. I think partially it's the struggle we all will have is to forget about that moment when you became a believer or to forget about the moment when God was there you didn't realize it, but he began to save you from something. We cannot forget these milestones. We cannot forget these markers. Jesus says it so much so that every time you eat, do it in remembrance of me, my body and my blood for you. Remember this day where salvation came to your house. Verse 20, and likewise the cup after they had eaten, saying this cup that is poured out for you is my new covenant in my blood. Now this language stuck, this covenant language, this Lamb of God language, this sacrificial language stuck all throughout the first century. And we can see it in the writings of the apostles. Verse Corinthians 5, 7, it says, Clean out the old leaven that you may be a new lump as you really are unleavened, going back to this readiness. For Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. This blood across the door that says we are safe. There is salvation. We will be free. Hebrews 9.14, how much more with the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, purify our consciousness from, our conscience from the dead works to serve the living God. How much more is this blood of Christ? So the language stuck. The, the connection between Exodus, the connection between the covenant, and the connection between the Passover stuck in the language of the apostles. Verse 21, But behold, the hand of him who betrays me is with me at the table. Now this, is an awkward statement. He has his 12 who has been with him this whole time through the ups and the downs and the trials and the journey. Now the readers of Luke already knew that, Luke, that, that, that uh, Judas was corrupt and was going to be the one that betrayed him. Other gospel writers wrote the same. But to them at the time, they didn't know that a traitor was in their midst. I believe at this time, Jesus was giving an opportunity for his betrayer to change, but, but he doesn't. It says, for the man goes as it has been determined, for the Son of Man goes as it has been determined, but woe to that man by whom he is betrayed. For they began to question one another, which of them could be the one who was going to do this? So they know Jesus is going to be betrayed. They know that someone sitting there is betraying him. They know because Jesus just said that he's going to suffer and die. And he's been saying it all throughout their journey. And they're like, yeah, 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 yeah. Cool it with the dying stuff, Jesus. We're on our way to the capital, right? They're already on their way. But listen to what happens. And I, I think this is where it becomes very relevant to us. We get the exodus. We get salvation. But then here's where the new rules or a new way come into place. Jesus has just laid out that the end is here and it's over. And here's what the disciples do. 
And you've got to remember, Jesus, he brings this thing, when we think about a new way, what uh, some have said, the great reversal. He brings the great reversal. That what you thought was up is actually down. And what you thought was down is actually up. God's ways are not our ways. Our ways have, have been developed by other means that are outside of God. And as soon as Jesus says these things, a dispute also arose among them as which of them was going to be regarded as the greatest. So Jesus says, guys, I'm going to die. And they're like, yeah, 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 yeah. Um, hey, which one of us do you think is going to be like, you know, next in line? This is what's happening. Jesus, with all of his great patience, and I think he has a lot of patience for us, and I think this just says a lot about the struggle we all have, is losing focus of what Jesus is doing. He's coming as a servant. The Bible says he came to serve, not to be served. He came and laid everything down to bring salvation and life to us, even his life he forfeits for us to give us life. Everything we have has been given to us. We can demand nothing. And yet, I think sometimes we'll find ourselves wondering who will be the greater among us. And then he flips the whole system upside down in verse 25. And he said to them, the kings of the Gentiles exercise lordship over them, and those in authority over them are called benefactors, meaning and we can somewhat relate to this, is what governments do. They're like, we're going to tax you, and we will be the benefactors, but it's for your good, right? So he knows, like, there's a hierarchy that happens. We can very much relate to this. But in verse 26 is when he begins to set a new table. But not so with you. Rather, let the greatest among you become as the youngest. And, um, and the leaders as one who serves. For who is the greater one who reclines at the table or the one who serves? He asked this question. And then he goes on to say, it is not the one who reclines at the table, but, the, but I am uh, among you as the one who serves. We can get this so backwards in our Christian culture, that we think that the more mature I become, the more I need to be looked to, to be served. And I don't mean like somebody bringing you something. I mean in the sense of like not looking to serve those who are less fortunate than us or not looking to serve those who are maybe just in the beginning of their faith, that maybe we look to be served. And we have to, have to, have to be careful of this. The disciples struggled with it right in the face of Jesus. We will also struggle with this. But I think this is true. We cannot, as Christians, get confused like these disciples did. This is a warning Jesus is giving his disciples. That if you operate this way, you do not understand my kingdom. If you think that one will be greater than another, you miss the kingdom. The communion table is the great equalizer for all of us here. We are all different. We all come from different backgrounds. We, we all have different like phases of life that we're in. But we all come to the communion table to remember something, that there was an exodus and that there's a new covenant and none of us can do anything but just receive it.
And we're all on equal playing ground with God. There will be no arguing about who is greater. The more mature the believer, the better the servant. I'll tell you who's a mature believer, those who serve. I don't, think, I don't care how much you know. I don't care how, how esteemed you are. I don't care if you've written books or even wrote a commentaries about the Bible. The more mature the believer, Jesus equalizes it right here, the more you will serve. And I will judge the maturity of a believer based on their level of servanthood to the culture around them, to the Christians within their life, and to their families. That is a mature believer. Uh, you can recite scripture to me all day, and we can think that's so wonderful. And it is great because it instills a reservoir inside of you in a belief system. But if it's not put to use in the level of servanthood for Jesus, I just don't think it really matters much. So it goes on to say, in verse 28, it says, those who, or sorry, you are those who have stayed with me in my trials. Verse 29, and I assign to you as a father, assigned to me a kingdom that you may eat and drink at my table in my kingdom and sit on thrones judging the 12 tribes of Israel. This is a future feast. They will not see this feast in their lifetime. They will see this post their life. And he's trying to teach them what you thought was up is actually down. My kingdom works very different. We're under a new covenant, there's a new exodus, and there is a new way of living. And that way is a life of servant leadership. Jesus' ministry, I think this, and we'll close with this, Jesus' ministry in Luke was centered around meals. So if you read the book of John, you're going to, you're going to hear, see John write a lot about the disciples and fasting. But Luke writes a lot about meals. I would say Luke would be the Jesus eating gospel. He is constantly eating. He, so much so that he goes to Zacchaeus and he's like, hey, I'm actually coming to your house today and you're going to make a meal and we're going to have fellowship. Now, what Luke is doing all throughout the book is showing the very way of which Christians are to act and believe. And that is to break bread with those who we are not supposed to be breaking bread with. That is to cross boundaries. That is to cross lines. That is to connect with someone who is so the other that it brings about fellowship and relationship. And others will scoff. And others will stand outside and say, why are you talking to that person? Why are you hanging out with that person? Why would you invite them into your home? They don't fit in your group. Luke is constantly bringing Jesus around a table. And Jesus' ministry in Luke was definitely centered around meals. <laughs> Who you ate with and spoke with meant a lot back then. I kind of think it does today. Who you spend your time with it means a lot. And so I think for some people, we don't want to spend time with anybody who doesn't get us ahead. But Jesus regularly addresses this about the seats at the table, all throughout the teachings in Luke, about inviting only those who will benefit you, only those who will help you, right? We have to be in the mindset of willing to serve those who are not like us. I think this, if when we invite someone, 
Have you ever been in this situation where you've invited someone over to your house or you're having people over and the person asks this question? Yeah, that's, that's awesome. Who's coming, by the way? Do you know that question? You know what that question means, right? Are there enough interesting people for me to be there? I, I don't like that. I, I, don't, I don't really like that. If somebody asks me that, and, and they may say it in a way of like, oh, who's going to be there? I'm excited. I know what it means still. Don't do it to me. The fact is, is I know you're determining based on who I tell you who is going to be there. And maybe if I tell you somebody you don't want there, you might not come. But Jesus is kind of writing this way that is different. The world works that way. Jesus did not work that way. I think ministry, it happens in relationship and it happens in community. And ministry happens breaking bread Modeling Jesus happens only through courage. It's courage to break down barriers. It's courage to, to, to be in an environment you're not from or comfortable with to reach out and serve. It's courage to do that. Jesus paid a price, and you will too. But I have a question. Will you extend yourself beyond the comfort to follow, your comfort to follow Jesus? I don't mean put yourself in a dangerous situation, if that's the case. I'm not saying that. I'm saying put yourself in a socially uncomfortable situation that others would scoff at. To serve. To be the very hands and feet of Jesus. This is what he's modeling to his disciples. It's not in Luke, but it's in other Gospels where Jesus washes their feet. I believe it's in Mark. Washes the feet of the disciples after this dinner. It's, it's very much what he's trying to display is that I am here to serve, not to be served. And as his followers, we are here to serve. The second kind of takeaway, I think, from today is today, as we do take communion, we've got to remember that Jesus, what he was telling his disciples. When you take communion today, it is a remembrance that you were under the boot of sin and you were eternally done. But Christ brought away an exodus for you you have to remember what that means. But my question, when you take communion, maybe you can ask it while we sing, is will you remember who you were before you called on God? Will you put yourself back there in remembrance? That's why the festival was there. That's why they did it for a, th a thousand years later or however long. They were continually remembering how great God is and where they came from. We can never forget where we came from. And, and will you remember how much has changed when we take communion? And will you think when you take communion that someone that you know is exactly where you were, still stuck in sin, slave to sin, on the other side of the promised land, hopeless? And in darkness, what do you think about this person? And the last thing before we take communion is remember that we can take from this section of Scripture is Jesus modeled servant leadership better than anyone who ever lived. If you want to learn leadership, if you care about learning about leadership, you can buy all the books that you want. Jesus was the greatest servant leader there ever was or will ever be. Because he owned and lived these principles. It's from the very heart of God and it's done through love. The world says, eat first. Get first in line to get on the plane. Get first in line at the Apple store. Camp overnight. Get first class. Get power. The world says, get popularity. Importance is everything. 
But Jesus switched all of that around for believers. And you want to know why you'll stand out as a Christian? Is because you will flip the script on what the world says is important and you will see other things as important. Why do you think people follow Jesus everywhere? Why do you think they just had to follow him across the sea? Why do you think they followed him everywhere he went and begged to follow him? Is because he flipped the world upside down and saw as a servant what needed to be done. Will you lose sight of Christ's examples to get ahead in the world's failing system? Will you get distracted like these disciples in the midst of the most important incident in the entire human history and still worry about what the, and operate by the world system of importance, power, position? Or will you come to serve? I think if you are in the mindset as a believer, still trying to please the world, still trying to work by a system, still thinking that's the most important thing in life, let me liken it to this. It would be like you arguing about the dress code as you're sinking in the Titanic, hoping that at least you're dressed properly. It's a waste of time. Worrying about the dress code while you're going down in the Titanic. That's exactly what Jesus is trying to shock his disciples into thinking, why are you wasting your time with all of that? There's work to be done. I came to serve. My believers come to serve. If you want to follow me, you're going to pick up your cross, and you're going to follow me. And it won't be pretty, and it won't be popular, and you won't gain the power you think you want. And I, I'm just telling you, you won't become all the things the world wants to promise you. But I tell you what, you will subvert the world system for God's kingdom. And that's what Christ ultimately came to do and bring salvation and life. And if you can never, ever, 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 ever forget the moment you found you went from death to life. I'll close with this last thought. When I was baptized, I was a ridiculous baptized person. I'll just say this. When I came out of the water, I, it was slightly embarrassing, okay? I almost killed my pastor. I got, <laughs> he had a microphone on. Chad, you would hate this. I, he had a microphone on. It was a wired in, not wireless. And I got out of the water, and I was so happy because I, I'll, I'll just never forget where I was before I met Christ, like, it was not a good way, and I was not in a good way, and I was in a very, very bad place. And when I met Jesus in my room, and I prayed this prayer, which I couldn't believe I prayed because I didn't believe in God, but yet I started to feel like maybe he's real. And I met Jesus. I'll never forget the grace I've met in that moment. Grace that, although my parents were kind and loving people and people around me, I never felt this type of grace. And for me, that was my experience was grace. I wasn't afraid of God. I had already come to terms that I would die and go to hell. I heard what I was preached at a lot. But I just, I was met with grace. It was different for me. And I walked out of there, and I met, this is a changed man. And when I was baptized, I was so excited, I hugged my pastor, got him all wet, almost brought him into the tub, and he was, had his wired microphone on, and we would have both died then, but we would have been good, right? <laughs> but it, it was just one of these moments where I, I have to remember and look back, and I can vividly remember that, like how happy I was when I came out of that water as a remembrance of death to life. 
When we take communion, my prayer is that you have that same experience of when you came from death to life. And that we are all the same people under the banner of Christ. There's no hierarchy. Just because I'm a pastor doesn't mean I deserve anything different than you. The only thing by being a pastor that's different than you is God's going to judge me harsher. That's not a great deal for me. Okay? You have a better deal than me. But the fact is, there's no difference. There's no hierarchy. We're all under the banner of Christ the exact same. And we need to make sure that we walk out serving the world in that mindset. Or we'll get caught up like the disciples and lose the moment, which he has to re-remind them of. Let's pray. God, we love you, God. We thank you. And as we come and take communion during this song, God, I ask that as we grab communion, maybe we look at the person across from us, God, or maybe we don't. Maybe we just, in our moment, remember that we were once dead, and it's because of this moment we remember you. That this communion Sunday is a day to say thank you. But God, really, every single time we eat, we're to remember that your body, your blood, the Passover, Exodus, new covenant, new way. We're here because, and, and who we are as we're here is because of you. And so we give you all glory, we give you all honor, and we thank you. And God, I just pray for anybody right now who is, is uh, not even here, but they're contemplating that maybe this year they might go to Easter service. Maybe this year, may, maybe the world's gone so crazy that they might be thinking, maybe God's a good option. I don't know, God, but, but whatever's happening in the world around us and our friends and our family and our coworkers, God, maybe, God, that you would use us to be the extension to offer a different way and a road out of bondage of sin and slavery because we so remember it and we're so grateful. How could we not share it? So God, I ask that today we walk out, we continue to pray for those who you are preparing right now to either come to our Easter service or go to some Easter service or at least to have a conversation about God maybe for the first time in a long time. And God, I pray that you prepare us that we're ready and we're willing to be that connection point. We love you in Jesus' name. Amen. You can stay at any time, grab communion, head back to your seat while we worship. <laughs>